0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit christmastreesny.org.
2: I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
3: Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram at feast.yr.ears. Joining me today in the studio is Cara Nicoletti, writer, butcher, blogger, not necessarily in those in that order um we're going to talk with cara about her book voracious that came out in august but before we do that uh aaron fairbanks from heritage radio is here in the studio with us and we're going to talk a little bit about heritage radio network what we do here at heritage beyond this show and why it's important
2: awesome thank you for having me harry um well so as listeners of this show i'm sure know uh, at heritage radio network we talk a lot about food um Like a lot, a lot. We produce over 38 weekly shows covering the world of food, drink, and agriculture from so many different angles. And it's been such a treat to really add your show to this lineup. Thank you. I think there's not really another program on our network or even really that I can think about that does this type of of content where you're really just sitting down with people and looking at the way food um, and their food story kind of intersects with different kind of historical events or personal narratives. And so I guess I want to say kind of first and foremost, like, thank you.
3: <laughs> thank you. I'm flattered.
2: <laughs> it's been really nice to add you to the lineup. And and I want to say to your listeners out there that one of the things that makes um, it possible for us to bring on new shows like this is your support. Um We are a nonprofit radio station. We depend entirely on the support of our members and the great businesses and uh, agencies and organizations that underwrite our programming. And as it's December, we are in the midst of our end of year funding drive. So I am making the rounds to ask for a couple of bucks from you. uh, If you like the show, if you've learned something, if it's... If it's brought uh, a new perspective into your life or just kind of filled your afternoon, I would ask you to consider throwing a few dollars our way. You can visit uh, the radio website, which is just heritageradionetwork.org. We've got a big beating heart, and you can make a donation in any amount. And there is a scroll down menu, so you can definitely let us know that Harry sent you and that you are supporting us in support of him. And I'm, I'm sure he would love to hear from you.
3: I would. I mean, I you know thank you, Aaron, and, and the staff here for allowing me to pitch the show and figure out the show. I, you know, it's something that I've thought about for for a couple of years now. We've sort of been batting around ideas, and finally, sort of the show has has come come together. And I really appreciate the opportunity that I get to come here and, you know, people may be listening on their computers and they just hear us and they think, well, this is being recorded in a place, but they don't, they may not have actually been here. And, you know, it is a physical place that has physical needs and there's equipment that has to be bought and paid for and staff and
2: all the things. (laughs) And and so
3: I just want to make sure people are thinking about that. You know, it's very easy to get this content just through a set of headphones while you're running or at the gym or sitting at your desk. But there really are physical things that go into this. And there's a lot of people who volunteer time. I mean, I I volunteer my time to this because i really enjoy it but it needs that support for this to continue
2: yeah and we want to do more of it and we want to uh, bring you more great shows we want to continue to work with harry to get great guests in the studio like he has today so i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna get out of your way guys and and just sit here and listen to the rest of what i'm sure is going to be a really wonderful conversation
3: thanks aaron uh so thank you cara so much for joining me yeah, today
4: thank you for having me
3: um cara uh comes from a family of butchers so i want to i want to talk yeah. a little bit about that not not very many people do uh come from a family line of butchers she's worked as a chef um and as i mentioned in the very beginning her collection of 50 essays and recipes based on food scenes in literature uh came out last august um and it's called voracious i recommend everybody pick it up it makes a really good gift me too <laughs> it'll fit in a stocking yep <laughs> um so can you introduce yourself Cara, and sure. tell us a little bit about uh, what you do now
4: yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm Cara. I um, worked for, I actually know Harry because I worked for like five years at the Meat Hook, um, which is part of the Brooklyn Kitchen. And uh, I left in the spring to go on book tour and do all those kinds of things. I actually went and cut overseas for a couple months. Um, and now I'm in the process of starting butchering at a new shop, um, that's not yet open. It will be opened hopefully within the next couple of weeks um, in Bushwick. It's called Foster Sundry, and I'll be uh, butchering there with two other people. Um, so that's kind of what I'm up to now besides trying to figure out a second book. That's that's where I'm at.
3: <laughs> um, that's great. Um, can you tell the tell the audience i guess the the listeners a little bit about how voracious came about you had a blog first called yeah. yummy books
4: yeah i still i still do it's been like quite some time since i've updated it um it kind of took a backseat because of the book but it actually started um like in 2008 as just a regular book club with my friends and whenever we would finish reading a book they would come to my house and i would cook something from the book we just read. Um, Does
3: it have to be a recipe or a food that appears in the book or influenced by? Or
4: It's usually in the book. It's like a food scene where people are, are and you'd be surprised. I mean, people don't notice it very often, but there's almost always uh, an eating scene or a cooking scene in a, in a book, and it's almost always like very important and central to what's happening in the book.
3: I've definitely yeah. noticed those moments far more
4: yeah. <laughs> since,
3: since, I, since I've known you and yeah. since I've started reading books before yeah. we wrote veracious
4: well it's it's something that I was obsessed with as a kid too I think um, it I was really quiet and sort of introverted and um, it was a way for me, I connected really deeply to the the characters in the books I was reading so it was a way for me to kind of make them feel more real and more physical. Um, And then I came back to it with this book club. That eventually turned into a separate club because it was 2008 and like everyone was doing that in Brooklyn. It was like a hot thing that everyone was doing. Um, It was a movement. It was. It was like, how can I scam people into spending money to eat in my like disgusting apartment? Um, And I did that that for a little while, and it was cr- kind of weirdly crazy popular, um, and I couldn't keep up with it. I was working actually as a baker at the time, so I um, my friends helped me turn it into a blog, and then the blog turned into voracious. Yeah. So
3: cool. Did you pitch long... it to the publishers, or did they approach you? No,
4: they actually <clears throat> approached me. Um, it was obviously something that was sort of in the back of my head. But I never thought that anyone besides, like, my grandparents and my friends would read it. Um, I remember looking at the stats, because I didn't know you could do that, and in the beginning being like, oh my god, 40 people read this day! Like, I can't believe it! And then it just got uh, really popular, and I actually did, like, a pig's head tureen for Lord of the Flies, and it sort of went viral, which is weird. Like my mom emailed me that morning and was like, you have to take this post down. People really love pigs and they're going to be really upset by this post. <laughs> um, and it actually ended up being the thing that got publishers um, emailing me and asking if I was interested in writing a book. So yeah,
3: that's uh, that's awesome. I really, yeah. I, I like the, I like the track. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know that you didn't you didn't think that it was necessarily going to be a book, right? And, no. But there's been enough interest in it and I mean even to the point, you know, you had a book tour, right? I, did, I mean, not yeah. every author gets a, even gets to know, go on a book tour. So especially
4: that's... now, um it's it's pretty rare thing for someone because it's expensive for the publishers to send someone on book tour, uh, but it was really fun. It was really tiring. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um do you have a do you have a favorite essay in the book?
4: Um I think probably the essay about, I think maybe the one about Anne of Green Gables, because I talk a little bit about my grandpa and my friend Lisa, um, and it's it's probably the most personal essay in the book, um, the heaviest essay in the book, but I also really love the Nancy Drew essay. Um, it's about rereading them as an adult and realizing that there's all sorts of like weird food anxiety and anorexia in them. Um, and I mean, it was, it was uh, the whole first chapter, which is all books that I read in my childhood. That's probably, that was my favorite to write because I got to reread them. Um, with a different lens as an adult.
3: Right. I've been I've been reading some of those sorts of books. I've read Little House in the Big Woods yeah. with Moxie. Yeah. My six year old.
4: Well and we've talked about the Hardy Boys too yeah. before. Yeah. Um, there's some really good so there was Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, and the Hardy Boys sort of were allowed to eat whatever they want and they're always having these big feasts and Nancy Drew is like always food shaming her friends and kind of like <laughs> nibbling at food. <laughs>
3: and have those are those books still published in the same format? Because we had talked about no. that with the Hardy Boys, right? At yeah. Where you were looking for antique copies yeah, because well, the subject matter is different and not just related to food. There's a lot of race issues and other Well, things. so they
4: redid them in, like, 1956 or something like that. They did sort of, like, a big overhaul um, because of all the racially insensitive language. But they changed so much more, and one of the things that they changed was how the characters relate to food which I think is really strange um, in the original books Nancy Drew is like all her and her friends are always eating big meals Best does not ever get called chubby um, and then when they redid them they sort of warped that whole thing um, which I think is really strange.
3: It is. I mean, I, it must be related to the, the timeliness of yeah. it, right? I mean, those books originally were written in the 20s, yep. right? Teens, 20s, something like that. Um, you know, when people were still mostly cooking at home mm-hmm. out of real ingredients. And yeah. Food was industrialized, but not to the point it was after World War II. Yep. And, you know, you had all these things like fashion and mm-hmm. women were supposed to be skinny and, you know, mm-hmm. all of those things happening and boys could do whatever they wanted. Yeah. And Women were supposed to be in the kitchen still, yeah. kind of, and, this, you know, that whole...
4: I know. It's it's. Really, it's really interesting to read it as an adult because they made me feel uneasy as a kid and I couldn't really pinpoint why. Um, so I, it was good to go back. It's it's amazing what books still hold up and what books just really don't as a grown-up. Like, Where the Red Fern Grows, I loved as a kid. I think it was the first book that ever made me cry. And as an adult, I was, like, completely not into it at all.
3: The Laura Ingalls Wilder stuff, I think, incredible. is great. Yeah, yeah,
4: so good. Really good. And so it taught me so much as a kid about... Uh, different things like you know i knew about whole animal butchery because it was what i saw in in my family but it made me think more about using up an entire animal and eating seasonally was something that i had no idea about
3: right and they're not doing it because it's a fad
4: it's because (laughs) it's it's because it's literally how and you know pickling things and preserving things It, it taught me a lot about about food
3: yeah yeah um there's uh and then, you know, to, to talk about, to, to sort of move on, I guess, from your, your pighead reading yeah. recipe. I mean, that, that immediately um, made me think of Charlotte's Web.
4: Yeah. Well, and Charlotte's Web is in the book, too. Um, and that's also an essay that was really fun to write because E.B. White, uh, I think a lot of people think that he was a vegetarian because of Charlotte's Web. Oh. Um, because, you know, the tone of the book is kind of about the gravity of eating meat and and asking questions about where the food on your plate comes from i think a lot of people think that he was a vegetarian but he actually was a pig farmer and raised his own pigs for slaughter um and he was really far ahead of his time in terms of like sustainable farming practices
3: i mean i think you know i I recently read charlotte's web with moxie too and the thing that struck me about that book was also about the relationships between the animals, mm-hmm. and that there was a huge variety of animals
4: mm-hmm. on the farm, which yeah. is
3: something that was true a long time ago, and we've moved as an industrial
4: to just having to, one thing exactly. on exactly. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's two different voices. There's Fern, who is very emotional and you know looks at it from an emotional standpoint, and then there's her father, who's a farmer and is very logical. So it's it's an it's a really interesting book. Um, he's he was an interesting guy, and he wrote an essay called. Death of a Pig, um, that if you like Charlotte's Web, you should read because it's a personal essay about a pig on his farm that gets sick. And it's really, really beautiful, Hmm. really beautiful essay. I'll
3: definitely definitely check that one out. Um, You mentioned that your grandfather appears in one of the essays. Yeah. Um, Mm Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your your grandfather sure. and his influence on? I mean, I I know because I know you. Yeah. he's had a large influence and continues to on yeah. your on your life and on who you are. So
4: yeah, um, well, that essay I was talking about was actually my other grandfather, oh. but but still, I mean, they're both <laughs> big influences. My my grandfather on my mom's side, or yeah, my mom's dad is uh, he was a butcher. Uh, his dad was a butcher. Actually, his dad's dad was a butcher um so they had a butcher shop in the north end of boston and then eventually in a suburb of boston called newton um and i grew up doing a lot of my after school time there um in between dinner we would go and do our homework there and work the cash register but he didn't want us to cut ever um he he had three daughters he didn't want them to cut um
3: was it because he didn't want them to go into the industry? Was it because they were women?
4: It's funny. When I was young, and even up until a few years ago, I always thought it was because we were women. Um, but the older I get, the more I realize that he didn't really want it for any... He wouldn't have wanted it for his sons either. Um, I don't think that it was a business that he necessarily wanted to go into. I think he had loftier goals. He wanted to be like a businessman. Um, but it was a time when you did what your family did and you followed in that, those footsteps. So, um, he was able to be a successful businessman in a butcher shop. Um, but I think he, he always used to say to us, like, I worked my whole life. So, so that you could sit at a desk and have clean hands. (laughs) And I, you know, he said it to my male cousins too. So, uh, it was something I think most of all, he wanted us to have a choice and i did have a choice and i still chose to cut um which was sort of horrifying for him at first but i think he's come around to it and we that's all we talk about now which is great
3: <laughs> that's 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 amazing yeah, yeah
4: i don't think there's a lot of you know 29 year olds who have a ton to say to their 86 year old grandpa but we have like hours long phone conversations which is really nice
3: right yeah. you mentioned that you um went and cut overseas for a little bit after you left the Meat Hook and and went on book tour Um, where were you?
4: I was in England Uh, I was in London um, at a shop called The Butchery Limited in Bermondsey um, I actually went over with the intention of working in as many shops as I could, and like no one would let me in. So um, this one guy called Nathan Mills was incredible, let me in. Um,
3: Did you just show up cold, and you were like, hey, no, I'm a butcher from America?
4: No, the woman I was staying with, um, it's her butcher. So she had told him before I came over um, that I was interested in coming over, and he actually was on a trip here a couple months before I went and came into the Meat Hook, and so we met, and he was like, come, on, come in whenever you want. I did it for free, because I didn't have a work visa. Um, but it was a, an incredible operation. The Meat Hook got, like, four bodies of beef a week, and he was getting, like, 20. But it was still oh. all from local farms, and, I mean, everything in England is grass-fed, because right. it just is. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean,
3: yeah, the, the, the British Isles, I mean, I remember talking with, with a farmer there who thought it was so weird yeah. that we feed grain to cattle in this country because why would you you have to no buy one, it?
4: Yeah, exactly. No one no one does that over there. Um, and Have you
3: ever flown into the Dublin airport? No. There are cows really like, next to the runway.
4: That's amazing. Yeah. I've, <laughs> no. flown,
3: I've flown through Dublin a couple of times and it really is incredible. I mean, it's a relatively small airport and wow. it's a little bit outside the city. And when you land, like there's the runway and then there's like some that's lawn so and then there's a fence and then there's cows grazing wow, right there.
4: That's great. And their their dairy is so much better, um, probably because how they process it, but also or, you know, don't process it as much, but right. also because the cows are all eating grass. Um, yeah, so I learned a lot. I was also in Sicily for a couple weeks um, working uh, on like a photo shoot. And cooking on it but i also got to go around to the markets and learn some things even though i don't speak any italian um yeah it was great it was and i also went out into the countryside in dorset it was lambing season when i got there so i got to do some lambing and um some pig farming which was really nice it was a nice like in between before coming home and going on book tour right yeah
3: uh, we're going to take a short break sure. uh, and hear from a sponsor. And uh, when we get back, we'll talk with Cara uh, a little bit more, maybe about some family recipes.
5: Okay. Sure.
1: Ever wonder where your Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arriving to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer. And trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space in agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm-fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit Christmastreesny.org.
5: Hi, this is Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. And you know, I remember my very first show, December 2009. Whew, it was a cold winter. And my first guest was William Grimes from the New York Times. Now, the one specific I had to tell him was wear a hat, gloves, and a warm coat because our studio had no heat. We had no heat in the winter, we had no air conditioning in the summertime it was rough going but we were a startup and we had a good show regardless of the fact that we could see our breath so today we still have hurdles to climb over and the only way we can get there is with your help so if you would please consider being a member press that little beating heart button in the upper right hand corner to donate it's going to help us have heat and electricity and air conditioning and really good sound with really great guests thanks for listening
3: welcome back to feast your ears I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn kitchen with me in the studio today is Cara Nicoletti author of voracious Um, before the break we were talking about books and butchering and other things. Um, I'd love to talk a little more about recipes and not necessarily recipes in your book, but about how you cook at home.
4: Yeah. Um, Well, it's interesting because I would say that I eat vegetarian like 90% of the time um, because it's what I crave when I'm not working. Uh, it's just like vegetables and grains. And we, we ate a lot Do of that. Do you get a lot
3: of meat by osmosis like through you're cutting? Yeah, and
4: also you're tasting things all day at yeah. the shop. And um, it's just not – I just don't want it. Um, so I cook a lot of We – I'm half Italian and half Jewish. And um, my, we ate a lot of sort of like Mediterranean food growing up. And uh, so I cook vegetables and grains and eat that with like tahini and yogurt pretty much every single night. Um but we also ate a lot of like really crappy american food growing up <laughs> it was not it was not all good do
3: you think that's from the, the jewish diaspora side or the italian i
4: think it's from the italian side i don't really know um my mom used to call certain things like just goy food that my dad would put in the fridge and it i remember specifically she called it like goy spread and it was pimento cheese spread like in this like <laughs> in this jar um But we ate, yeah, we ate a lot of, um, like, casseroles and stuff like that growing up, and I don't really make that kind of stuff anymore.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Do you find that you cook from recipes, or do you just kind of shoot from the hip?
4: Um, I guess both a little bit. Uh, If I'm cooking just dinner for myself, I very rarely follow a recipe. If I'm baking, I always follow a recipe, because you have to. Um, And if I'm cooking for friends, sometimes I'll follow a recipe. I don't really know why that is, but um like if i want to try something new for a dinner party or something like that i'll cook from a recipe
3: i think it's more exciting to to try those new things with friends yeah. right i mean i there's a there's a certain like I mean, by and large, you know, you're probably choosing recipes from an author or from a place that you respect. So yeah. you know it's probably going to be pretty good. Yeah. And there's something exciting about talking about that process yeah. with people while you're eating it.
4: And there's also just the logistical factor of like, if you're cooking from a recipe, usually the serving size is between four and six people. So <laughs> if, it's, if I'm point. just cooking for myself, I usually. I don't need that much food. Yeah,
3: I yeah. Think, I think that, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, um, you mentioned you mentioned the baking um, thing and needing a recipe. I yeah. have a whole bunch of recipes from my family that were translated by my mother and my aunt from their grandmother, oh, wow. who didn't use recipes.
4: Oh, interesting.
3: She just did everything in baking by feel, and and my you know they they talk about this thing of basically like trying to like stop their grandma in the middle of making be like put this in a bowl so we can measure it and then you can go (laughs) on with your
1: recipe yeah
4: there's a lot of that uh and one of my favorite things when i was working at the meat hook was uh, when people would come in and say my grandma used to make this thing and they would describe it Uh, i don't know what it was it's not written down anywhere and they would sort of describe it and we would try to figure out what it was um yeah i think a lot of baking is more instinctual than people give it credit for, because you you do have to follow a recipe, but especially something like bread making, a lot of it is like, do it till it feels right. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to sort of keep doing it until you know what that means. And
3: those things are so hard to describe in books. I mean, yeah. they are. I, I have a yeah. sourdough starter that I started over the summer that just even mentioning it reminds me in this busy time of year, I yeah. actually really need to feed it yeah. It's not dead in the <laughs> fridge. I haven't gotten it out in a couple of weeks. But um, you know and i've been playing with different things to do with it because yeah. i don't really have time to do like full sourdough yeah. bread and stuff and i just my schedule is too crazy but i've been doing a lot of like flatbread with it and a lot of that has just been my feel i mean yeah, i've just been like taking it out and feeding it and then yeah. you know adding stuff to it and then cooking it in the evening letting it rise all day but a lot of that has just been about
4: and feel. look and smell yeah. and yeah um so baking i think is something that I understand when people are afraid of it, yeah. I do <laughs>
5: um,
3: you mentioned the Mediterranean. I made some sort of pita with it um, recently, but I used the um, white mustache yogurt has a oh. savory shallot yogurt oh, that's that super good. So good and I used that in the in the uh the my mouth pita. Is like water yeah, really that white good. mustache
4: yogurt changed my world. I like almost went broke because of it. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, you can find white mustache sugar at the Brooklyn Kitchen. Sometimes we always sell out of it because so we can't. Homa, who makes it, um, it seems like just she can't she can't meet the demand, yeah, and she doesn't want to compromise her process at all. So, well,
4: I appreciate that. Yeah, it's really
3: really good. I recommend everybody. Yeah, check it out. Um, I wanted to touch on um, eating in restaurants. Um, sure. I had asked I had sent a question about whether you would prefer a table for one or a dinner party and you, you write about really enjoying eating alone in restaurants, but yeah. that it took you a while to get used to it. Yeah. Um how you know what do you think what do you think that was? Like why did it take a long time to get used to eating alone in a restaurant?
4: Well, it's so I moved to New York eleven years ago, um and I remember I didn't ha- even have a cell phone or anything like that. Um so getting used to eating alone was meant something kind of different than it means now because now you kind of can always have someone to talk to even if you're sitting there alone
3: it's a really good it's yeah. a really good point that yeah. you know yeah you can be texting with someone or yeah, reading something so on you your don't phone or, yeah
4: you don't feel you don't have to let that loneliness like really wash over <laughs> you um and i remember in high school getting really used to going to movies by myself because I wasn't cool. Um, but that's different. You're sitting in the dark and you're eating popcorn. No one can see you and it's whatever. But if you're eating a meal alone in the daylight, it's a really vulnerable thing. Um, and so it was one of my goals when I moved to New York at 18, for some reason, I was like, I'm going to learn how to eat alone. I think because eating in my family was so always so communal. Um, my my aunts and my cousins and everyone would come over. We ate dinner as a family every single night. So um, it was a huge adjustment being new in a city and alone and having to, you know, figure out how to feed myself. So um, once I did that, once I got comfortable with it, it kind of, I love it now. It's like I love going to the movies by myself now. Um, Eating alone is so, it's really vulnerable and personal. Yeah. Um, and you really get to focus on the food and enjoy it and just like turn your brain off a little bit. It's One
3: nice. of the things I love about it is that it, it also allows you to really look around at where you are, mm-hmm. which I don't think happens if you're, you know, if you're having lunch with someone or you're with a group of people eating yeah. together, you don't necessarily pay as close attention to the other people in yeah, the room. Yeah, and it's,
4: it's really interesting to watch other i love eavesdropping (laughs) Um, but it's really interesting to watch other people interact with each other over a meal because i think that's sort of when you see people the most clearly even if they're strangers it's interesting to watch strangers eat a meal with each other Um, and you can't really do that like you know my friends will always get mad at me for out they're like you're eavesdropping in like a really obvious way right now (laughs) um so if i'm alone no one gives me crap for it i can do it
3: (laughs) do you have any favorite places in the city where you like to go to eat alone
4: I love, there's a restaurant called Lighthouse um, that's right in my neighborhood. It's right down the street. And I love eating alone there. Um, especially at the bar. The food is really good. It's really good, like, Israeli food, and um, there's always really good people watching, and it's a really bright, beautiful space. I go there and eat alone a lot.
3: (laughs) I've always liked eating alone, and I I, I would say I have sort of a similar thing. I mean, when I moved to New York, I had a cell phone, but it was sort of before texting was a thing 16 years ago, and I would go out and eat alone Mm -hmm. quite often, and a lot of it was about people watching because I just really enjoyed that, and I enjoyed, you know, I, you know, I do love the ceremony around food with Mm -hmm. other people. Um, And we certainly, I think, I think we, there's a negative connotation to like eating alone or cooking for yourself.
4: Yeah.
3: Which, you know, is too bad because it really is a nice experience even to cook for yourself. But I always liked places where I could feel totally anonymous. Mm -hmm. So I don't really enjoy eating alone in restaurants that I frequent or that I know people. So, Uh. you know, the places that I really have always liked, um, the oyster bar in grand central i I love love going in there i mean i love going there with people too but i love eating alone in there because you just like everybody's so transient and you can and you're just like you're just you're 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 not anybody you're just a person
4: yes very true um
3: the howard johnson's that used to be in times square i used to love (laughs) going in there by myself
4: that's amazing (laughs) um
3: there's a there's a i haven't been there in a long time but there's a little spanish place on on the east side of eighth avenue i think about around like 15th street called taza de oro okay just like a tiny little like cuban like dominican like lunch counter kind of place i used to go in there and they actually have a they have a table or they used to that had only one chair
4: oh it was like it like
3: tucked in a corner so like it was really a table for one i mean they have a bar and stuff too and you could sit there but that was another place i used to really really like i that was that was i think the moment where i i ate there alone in let's see I think it was 1999 mm-hmm. on Halloween. Oh wow! By myself. Yeah. And that was the moment I think where I sort of like decided that I really liked yeah, going I somewhere still, alone to eat.
4: I still remember the moment that I realized it, and it was um, it was the first time in New York that I ever sat for a meal and ate alone. And it was at Monty's, which is this like red sauce Italian place on McDougal Street. Um, and I went on Valentine's Day. I don't know if I was like challenging myself even more, but I ate like this big plate of gnocchi with cream sauce and um they let me drink even though i was only 18 i drank red wine and i just felt like very grown up and um yeah it was i i think it was uh, that was the first time i ever was like i can do this and i'm gonna be fine there was a mariachi band playing like romantic songs it was great
3: <laughs> <laughs> i used to i haven't done it in a long time but i i used to um I used to have a job that afforded me once in a while having like afternoons free
4: mm-hmm. and
3: I used to love going to McSorley's by myself.
4: Oh, that's a good place to go. In like the middle up. of the week. Yeah.
3: In an afternoon with a book.
4: Yep. I yep. mean,
3: very it's like It's so
4: dark in there. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but I used to I used to really like going there cuz you know, I mean, they serve lunch. They have yeah. like, you know, fish like and a chips on Friday. Liverwurst and, yep. and
4: crackers. Yep. <laughs>
3: So I used to, I used to do that a lot, but yeah. I haven't done that in a long time.
4: Now that you're a dad. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, pretty soon I can take the kids there. True. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> um, so, um, bacon, bacon. uh, yeah. you mentioned that as a, as a pet peeve, yeah. the sort of movement towards bacon on everything. Do you think we're, think we're over the hill on that I, one?
4: I hope so. Uh, I still see it. I think in Brooklyn we're over the hill yeah. because we're over the hump because People got over it a little while ago, but I still, I still see commercials for it, like in a lot of different places that it shouldn't be. um It's weird because it start. I feel like it started as a byproduct of sort of like the artisanal meat movement and uh, all that, and it's just gotten out of control, and now it's like.
3: Do you think it's? Do you think it's because like real, real bacon is so much better than like supermarket <laughs> bacon? You know what I mean? It's
4: possible, but I also think it's just like. If everyone gets this obsessed with bacon, and they're putting it on their donuts and like in their vodka, then there's no way to do it in a sustainable way. It's just right. silly. It's yeah. it's 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 silly. So um, it drives me nuts when I see it on a donut and stuff like that. And like in someone's tinder profile like, i love bacon I'm like see ya <laughs>
3: well, take take note is Kara, coming after you to get rid of the bacon on and the
4: burning man pictures no more
3: <laughs> um i had a guest on a couple of weeks ago and actually one of the pictures that we put up is of him cooking bacon at burning no! Man. so you probably shouldn't look at
4: that <laughs> We talked about food at
3: Burning Man, and that's what he was. He was was in charge of breakfast for his camp, and
4: okay, well, I'm gonna stop Stop talking then.
3: (laughs) No, it's it's (laughs) fine. Well, we are we are sadly out of time. Yeah, Um, but thank you, Cara, for coming on. Feast your ears. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, Um, and definitely, I would recommend that everybody, um, if you're looking for an interesting book for you to read, or someone who is interested in literature, uh, or food, or literature and food, um, definitely check out Cara's book, *Voracious*. Um, we were talking earlier that because it is a essay book and a sort of a memoir and also related to cooking, you may have to look around the bookstore <laughs> yeah. a little bit to find it. Yeah. But they, every store
4: it. puts it in a different place. So, yeah. yeah, but
3: definitely ask for it and, uh, and, and check it out. And then Cara is working on a, a new book, um, that's not titled and isn't fully
4: <laughs> a, thing yet. a thing yet,
3: but, <laughs> yeah. uh, keep, keep an eye out if you like yeah. voracious that her, her next book will be out uh, at some point. Yeah. Um, Thank you for listening to Feast Your Ears. Big thank you to Kristen Baylor, who's my producer here at Feast Your Ears, and Liz Smith, who engineers this show every Wednesday. And please take a moment to like the show on Facebook and iTunes and follow us on Instagram. Talk to you next week.